rate password crackdown is working. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by Motley Fool analyst Jim Mueller. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Dylan. We are talking streaming today, and we are kicking things off with Netflix. Last month, Netflix began its crackdown on password sharing. And Jim, the early indications, based on what we're seeing from subscription firm Antenna, is that that crackdown is working, and we are seeing a surge in subscriptions. Well, this is certainly good news for Netflix. When they announced that they were going to have to do this um, back in 2022, they they said of their 200 at the time 220 million subscribers, 100 million of them, 100 million of them worldwide were sharing their passwords. And so this is something they needed to do. I mean, when they were growing fast, who cares, right? They had the luxury of being able to say, that's okay. This yeah. is a perk of membership. And they were growing at 20% a month, uh, a quarter, year over year for like six, seven, eight years, okay? But then the pandemic happened and their subscription growth, their subscriber growth, the number of people signing up, fell off a cliff. From 20% a year, it fell down to 10% a year in 2022. In 2021, and down to 5% a year for each quarter on average last year. And so they need to do something because subscribers are still the engine that drives the company. Yeah, this is a business that needed to find growth. And I think we were watching this story and we were wondering okay, a lot of people are sharing passwords. Does the value of the service live up to having to pay for it if you can't share it? And what we're seeing so far is these notifications started going out in late spring. They really began ratcheting down in May. And Netflix had its four best days of US customer signups in late May, hitting nearly 100,000 daily signups and setting new records, Jim. I don't know that I was expecting that level of a reception for this. Well, it, it kind of follows what the companies uh, discovered worldwide. I mean, so back before it was not in the entire world. <laughs> Piracy was a was pretty common in in areas that it was going to move into, and they found that when they moved into an area, most people went off the piracy and started signing up for them and paying for the content. So most people are pretty honest, and sure, people are going to take advantage of the company, of of the policy uh, when the company is not cracking down. But when they say, "Hey, you really need to start paying for the content you're watching," most people are are willing to do that. I think. So there were two major growth drivers I looked at for this business for the year. One of them was the crackdown on passwords mm-hmm. and being able to grow users by forcing those folks who are sharing to pay. The other one is exploring that ad-supported tier for this company, because it gives them a little bit of flexibility in pricing, and this is a business that has raised its prices pretty consistently over time. Yeah, they have been raising prices by about a dollar a month, roughly every one to two years, say 18 months on average. and. Then they ran into a, they ran into a wall uh, and during the pandemic, and people and they saw a sequential drop in subscribers uh, when they pushed the last price hike through, and so they were already the most expensive, and so that the idea that they could raise prices forever went out the window. It was gone, <laughs> and so they have to come up with okay. So if we can't raise prices and and our subscriber growth is slowing down, which it was, they have to come up with another way of revenue because that content is not getting any cheaper, and Netflix is spending. 
billions, six, seven billion dollars a year. I can't remember what their latest guidance is, but it's on that order of, of new content, and that is the majority of their revenue. They don't have a lot of reserves like other companies um, have, like Amazon and Apple, for example. And even Disney has more more cash in the bank than Netflix does. They have to come up with another way to generate revenue, and advertising seems to be it. Early indications are that that is successful. I believe we've seen statements from management saying that five million monthly active users mm-hmm. are in some element of an ad-supported experience with Netflix. There are some puts and takes with that yeah. number, but I think that's a number that is big enough to show that there is traction here. There is traction, but uh, we don't have any real hard data yet. I mean, what is a monthly active user? Is that a subscriber or is that a viewer in the household? Uh, one of those profiles. And, and remember, you can have several profiles on your account. What what we really what what analysts really need what what investors really need is the actual numbers. How many subscribers are going on that ad based tier, and how much uh, revenue are they generating, and how much ad revenue is the company generating to make up for uh, the lower the lower priced tier? And they aren't revealing those numbers yet. And until they do, I'm still kind of staying out of the stock because. I, my original model broke, and I don't have the data yet to build a new one, but uh, a lot of people uh, are very excited about the company. The story for this business has changed so dramatically mm-hmm. over the last year. Shares of Netflix up 150% over the last 12 months, still well off the 2021 highs. I could see how you may want to see some of these things materialize a bit more, because the company is off highs, but this is still a relatively expensive and growthy name, given how much uncertainty is around this business. Definitely, and I, I sold my shares, unfortunately, down near that low. <laughs> I mean, still good made good money on the company, no doubt about that, because I had held them for a long time. But yeah, the share price has gone up a lot since since that decision, and I'm still maintaining. Yeah, don't use the share price as the judgment for your decision making process. You want a good process. You'll make mistakes uh, on now and then, but uh, if you have a solid process, you'll do better in the long run. Yeah, I've missed out that 150% recovery. I wish I have, but there are other ways to make money off the company, and I'm doing so. We start off the show talking Netflix, and I think the reason for that is this was the innovator in streaming, and because they were the innovator, they also ran into the slowdown in streaming before so many other players in this space. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is probably in the the future for the likes of Disney, for the likes of Amazon, for the likes of Apple. Right, and Netflix was, was the for for years for years the leader of the streaming, and then uh, Disney came in and Amazon started up, and uh, now we have Paramount. We have. Whatever HBO is called nowadays is a Max. Max, <laughs> so it's so catchy. And and uh, Discovery, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery has their set. Everybody is streaming. Uh, Hulu is streaming. Crunchyroll, my anime. Uh, I love it. I love it for anime. Uh, my wife and I watch it a lot. I mean, everybody is streaming, and so there's all this competition. And so now, with with so many places for uh, for viewers to put their dollars and how that translates into an, um, a much lower ability to raise prices, all these guys are going to have to find out ways to get more revenue. And that, unfortunately, for those of us who got used to Netflix being ad-free, means advertising. And I mean, certainly uh, Amazon is think, uh, thinking of uh, 
you could get your you could get your Prime Video with your with your annual subscription, okay, and it's ad free. But now they're throwing some ads in at the beginning, and now they're asking you to pay up for an ad free experience. Disney, I, I can't remember what Disney's doing, but I think they're they're thinking the same thing. Apple hired a, a big advertising exec uh, last February. Lauren Fry, I think, was her name, and so they're getting into onto the game. So the, all the big players are on this, and I think we're going to go back to advertising, or you pay more out of pocket to avoid it. Cable with slightly more steps, right, Jim? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's interesting, and it makes sense when you think about the economics of this business. You can only continue to raise prices for so long. Right. One of the interesting things with advertising here is. There seems like there's a way for this business to find growth and maybe be able to find growth without necessarily passing that cost along to the customer, but instead switching who the customer is and having it really be advertisers. Right. So Netflix is oh, everyone's discovering that uh, as more there's more more demand for the content, the content becomes more expensive. And Netflix's idea was okay, we're going to grow our subscribers fa faster and get more revenue, and then we'll be free cash flow positive, and it'll work out. But as that content gets more expensive, you keep having to get that content. You keep having to have the unique content for yourself to keep the subscribers in your business, and it's, it's just getting. You have to find some way to pay for it if you want to keep on growing. Given that the entire industry seems to be moving this way, Jim, I want to talk a little bit about some of the trade-offs that come with an ad-supported model. Because we've been in a period where subscribers have basically footed the bill for content, and that's meant that creative control has been very high, mm -hmm. and that these platforms have been able to really control the relationship with the user. I have to imagine that's going to change. Do you expect that to change? I, I totally expect it to change, and it's one of the things that I was what it was part of my thesis on Netflix was that Netflix controls everything and they give the content creator free license. Okay, uh, saying you can do whatever you want. You can have a forty-five minute show. You can have an hour fifteen show instead of what is now forty-two minutes for per hour or whatever it is on on. Uh, network TV. And you don't have to put in timed breaks. You don't have to have miniature cliffhangers to make sure the person comes back after the ad, ad break to, to continue watching the show. And so, that gave a lot of free license to the uh, content creators, and they loved it. They loved working for Netflix because of that. But but now that Netflix is going back to ads and everyone else is too, I think the content creators are <laughs> crying a little bit in their in their beers uh, because they're losing that uh, or potentially losing that. And so how many how much will the advertisers uh, dictate? And not only not only uh, the breaks of where the ads are, but the content itself. Does does a brand want to be recognized or, or a, a affiliated with a, a particular show that might not be very good or have a negative connotation? And Netflix had some controversial stuff uh, come out. I don't think we're going to see as much of that going forward. When we're talking advertising, we can't help but also talk a little bit about data here, Jim. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I'm wondering with this is. Is there going to be a point where we get a little bit more from Netflix? Oh, of course, because they have to. Of course, I mean you're spending millions of dollars for replacement uh, uh, in a show, and you want to know how how what your return on that on that investment is. Okay, how many people watched it? What were the demographics? Are we tar are they the target audience we thought they were? And so Netflix is going to have to start sharing that, and everyone else, of course, is going to have to start sharing that. And that also is something that Netflix is having to give up with this new uh, new reality that they're entering, that they're beginning to get particularly meta here, Jim. Uh, I'd love to talk more, but we have to take a break. It's it's time for us to head into the mid show read. <laughs> Stick around, though, listeners. I promise there'll be good stuff. Jim Mueller, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dylan. 
you take business advice from a chatbot? Sazan Gadarzi, the CEO of Intuit, business software company that owns QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Credit Karma, is hoping you might. Asit Sharma cut off with Gadarzi to talk about how his company is using artificial intelligence to grow and Intuit's data advantage. So the last time we spoke, which is about a year and a half ago, uh, you were really emphasizing the role of artificial intelligence, both in into its internal development and its strategy for its customers. So maybe take us back uh, to that point and bring us forward to today. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I love talking about AI, but maybe if I could uh, zoom out for uh, for a moment. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, we did about it's almost been five years now uh, was to focus on shifting the company from a tax and accounting platform, solving two very very important uh, problems for our customers, uh, to really being a, a platform where we solve daily meaningful problems for our customers, and truly being a platform that you rely on us on a daily basis, both as a small business and uh, as a consumer, because that really helps us with what we have ultimately set out to do, which is to power prosperity you know, around the world. That was one element of our um, strategy that we've declared uh, almost five years ago. The other element of the strategy was that we wanted to get to a place where we are actually doing the work uh, for small businesses and consumers when it comes to their money automatically, meaning that we're delivering insights, uh, we're providing uh, perspectives, we're providing suggestions so we can eliminate the work and the drudgery, but that they ultimately can find ways to get more money in their pocket and do it you know, with a lot of confidence. So at a big picture, the ultimate intent of our strategy uh, was what I just uh, described. And, and you know, we have a $300 billion TAM that... Uh, that really entails customers uh, spending a lot of their time on Google Sheets, uh, Excel, uh, receipts and shoeboxes, manually you know, connecting with uh, bookkeepers and accountants. And that's really important because uh, as we've been building out our platform, we're not trying to get people to switch from another platform. It's really uh, to deliver something that's better than doing things manually. Data and AI uh, have been key to achieving that outcome. So when we declared our strategy five years ago, what we said was the most important thing that we have to focus on is get a 360 view of the customer's data uh, and focus on AI. Now, back then, five years ago, when we talked about AI, it was really in three areas. It was machine learning, uh, it was knowledge engineering, and it was natural language processing. And a lot of our innovation in the last four or five years uh, has been accelerated because of our investments in data and AI. And in fact, our two major acquisitions that we've made have really been about enriching um, our data platform uh, and, and enriching our AI platform. Both MailChimp and Credit Karma brought an incredible amount of customer data and AI capabilities to help us sort of leap you know, forward uh, five to 10 years. Now, I'll tell you, um, I have been on the record uh, to say a few things. Uh, one, five years ago, what I said was, I believe uh, AI is going to be a platform that will ignite innovation across the globe, across every industry, and that will only be in line with what electricity did and the internet did. Now, 
I remember when I said that five years ago, people kind of rolled their eyes uh, and thought I was just trying to be dramatic. But I and we truly feel that AI is revolutionary. And I tell you, I think we are now in the most exciting times because what, what is amazing about what's possible uh, with generative AI uh, is that it can humanize things. It can personalize things. Um, it can truly help us at least achieve what we set out to achieve five years ago, which is as a small business, I can actually propose to you based on all the data that we have, what to do to grow your business and run your business and actually share with you very specifically what you can do based on what we know about your business to be able to win and thrive. And and so therefore, uh, I'll just end uh, answering your, your question with the following, which is we've been investing heavily uh, in generative AI for the last couple of years. And in fact, most recently, we announced uh, the Intuit Generative AI uh, operating system. Because at the end of the day, it really does come down to being clear about two things, the customer problem you want to solve and the technology. And with our generative AI operating system, uh, it entails a, a few things that are essential for us to continue to ignite innovation. Uh, one element uh, of it is uh, it is what we call Gen Studio. It is a development environment uh, that will allow our developers to move with high velocity and natively use um, the capabilities that they need to solve the, the customer problem. The other, and I would say probably the most important part of uh, the infrastructure that we've built out uh, is what we call Gen AI Runtime. It's really the brains. It's the orchestrator. Uh, and this orchestrator uh, really leverages all of our data platform capabilities that we have. So very specific data about a customer. Uh, it leverages, it decides which large language models to leverage because we've built our own Intuit um, large language models that are being trained by all of the specific data that we have for uh, each of our customers, which in itself is a, a discussion we could, uh, we could have. Uh, and then when we focus on doing things like helping a customer improve their credit score, helping a customer with how do I uh, double my cash flow in the next few weeks, this orchestrator reaches out and uses um, relevant data uh, leverages the right relevant large language models to then come back uh, to the customer with a specific answer that's humanized and personalized for them. So that's a big part of uh, what we uh, released. And then we also released what we call Gen AI UX. These are ultimately um, user interface capabilities uh, so that uh, we're building things once uh, and all of our engineers can leverage them uh, across the, the company. So well, that's uh, what we've been working on for a couple of years. We just announced it because it is ultimately the infrastructure that we are using uh, to release and reimagine a number of big changes in our customer experiences that we believe will you know, ultimately help us achieve our mission of powering prosperity around the world. And I can share some of the things that we are um, uh, focused on, but uh, I think it's very exciting times. I think it's exciting times for... Um, the world uh, in terms of what's possible with AI. And I think now uh, things are possible that, you know, frankly, in the past never were. So I'm very excited. We're very excited about it. Sasan, all that's fascinating. And, and this is where I think this leap in technology really favors companies like Intuit, which have access to so much data, 
with the transformer model, those limitations that might have been there four or five years ago in terms of memory slowly we're finding solutions for. I, I find this fascinating. Um, I wanted to just point out this feels very Intuit to me in that Intuit has always built uh, sort of an ecosystem approach to its customers. We always have third parties coming in. I'm asking this only uh, half-jokingly with Gen Studio and, and Gen UX. When will we see third-party apps in the Intuit uh, store that are tapping into this technology? So we are a, an open platform. And, um, and uh, the most important element of being an open platform is how we leverage the transactional data of a PayPal, of a, a Square, since I use those uh, as an example. And when I mentioned that data lake, uh, that our large language models reach out to you, that data, the customer's data, uh, which was a Square transaction, a PayPal transaction, is all in that data lake. And so there isn't a time in which we will uh, be able to um, allow um, that data to be accessed by GenOS. It's actually part of the infrastructure that we're building. The key, and where I led with, uh, it's a very hard problem to solve and why for us, everything is about the data, is you got to make sure that data is clean. You got to make sure that data is usable. You got to make sure that um, that Gen OS and particularly machine learning knows how to use that data. So we invest a lot of time making sure the design and the structure of that data is such that Gen OS can actually use it. But it is already, it is part of what we are launching. There's no sort of timetable for it because it's the customer's data. Wonderful. So, San, we have just a few more minutes. Uh, love those answers. Give me one risk scenario in which this thesis of everything come to, coming together automatically, it's hard to say, automatically, yeah. <laughs> gets, gets uh, challenged or upended. You know, it, it really for us comes down to um, accuracy. Uh, and um, one of the things that we take very seriously, which is where our knowledge engineering investments over the years become so important now, our knowledge engineering investments are about completeness and accuracy. So when you ask me, uh, hey, how do I improve my credit score? When you ask me, uh, hey, how can I double my customers? Um, we have to have the right level of controls relative to the data that we use, um, how we apply our technology uh, to be able to give you a proposal, but also say, hey, Seth, um, this is the confidence factor in what we are proposing to you so that there's full transparency. So for us, the biggest thing is actually about accuracy and are we making a difference in your financial life? We don't worry as much about a lot of the talk out there, which is like hallucinations, because we have a lot of the capabilities to be able to uh, focus on the task at hand. But our biggest focus uh, and where, to your question, things uh, may not pan out the way we would wish is completeness, accuracy, trust, uh, where you can trust what you're getting from us. And, and then you continue to come back because we're truly impacting your life in a positive way. That's what we're focused on. And that's what we're going to get right. As we conclude, uh, one more question for you. Give me one uh, sort of scenario or vision in which everything is working according to plan. What are the attributes or maybe metrics or qualitative things that you'll see that tell you, yeah, you know, all this investment in AI, 
our shift to, to marry up our machine learning with our expert knowledge and Gen AI is, is really taking root and we're happy with it. Uh, I love that. I love that question. So um, we have two metrics uh, that we internally hold ourselves accountable to to measure our, our mission. Uh, the, the two metrics are we've set a goal where anybody that's on our platform, we want to be able to double their household savings rate. And we measure that and talk about it uh, internally every quarter. And we talk about it with the board. Um, the second uh, metric is 50% of businesses go out of business after five years. And the goal that we've set is if you are on our, our platform, uh, we want to reduce that to 30%. So the two goals are we want to increase the livelihood uh, and success of small businesses, and we want to uh, power the financial prosperity of consumers. I'll tell you where we are against both goals, uh, just not to leave you um, hanging. Um, on the uh, double your household savings rate, uh, we are at 1.2. So if you are on our platform, uh, your savings rate is 20% better than if you are not on our platform. We're not at the doubling yet, uh, but we are making uh, progress. In fact, during the COVID years, it went up to 1.8, but I don't use that number often because I think it was inflated. Uh, not because I think it was inflated by all the stimulus and government funding. So we're making great progress uh, and room to improve. On the small business uh, side, um, as I said, 50% go out of business uh, after five years. If you are on our platform, uh, we have improved that by um, nearly 15 points. Uh, so that 15 points of, of uh, businesses are less likely to go out of business if they're on our platform versus not. And our goal is to actually get to um, being 20 points better uh, than industry. So those are the metrics that matter the most because our view is it's ultimately about the success of small businesses and it is about the success of consumers. And that is what we hold ourselves accountable to. And actually we are extremely hopeful that with generative AI, we can now do things that we never imagined possible and are very excited about the possibilities. Sasan Ghadarzi, this has been really insightful for our members and I so much appreciate your time today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Great to see you. Same. As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.